This is the Volleyball Coaching Wizards podcast, covering everything coaching. Motivated and inspired by interviews and conversations with some of the world's great volleyball coaches. To learn more about the project, visit VolleyballCoachingWizards.com. Now here are your hosts, John Foreman and Mark Levijou. Welcome to episode 20 of the podcast. Uh, this time we feature a clip from the Arnie Ball interview where he talks about whether or not he uses A team versus B team, first team versus second team, scrimmages and, and gameplay in his practices. This is something that Mark and I discussed in Mark's interview, um, so a little bit of that will come back here, and I think we go a bit further and expand the discussion. So um, hopefully you get some interesting thoughts and ideas for what you might want to do with your own team. Um, as a reminder, now that we're up on iTunes, uh, we'd appreciate it if you would go over there and give us a rating so we can let people know all over the world that you know we're providing good information and, and hopefully good value to you. All right, on with the podcast. In your training, when you were scrimmaging, when you were doing 6v6, were you doing A team versus B team, or did you mix, mix the squad more? I did both. Uh, I thought it was very important that our better players play against uh, better players. Uh, and then, of course, of course, you got to put your team together, so you got to spend some time doing that. But I, and I did a lot of handicapping our A team, I guess you would say, uh, make it very difficult for them to win. And if they and if they lost, I I ran their butts for a couple couple seconds afterwards. And uh, so I really did a combination of both, and it was just kind of a matter of what we thought we needed that day or maybe that week in regards to whether it was on the offense or the defense. Uh, our, our good left side, you know, we're going to face this big block the next, the next match, and so we put our better blockers against our good left side and make him uh, uh, play against that better block. Okay, this this whole A side, B side question is something that we've we've asked a lot of the coaches along the way, and the the approaches vary. Um, I know when you and I talked, Mark, you were primarily in favor of not going a side b side at least most of the time and yeah. um, i just got off an interview with Michael, who interestingly talked about how for most of the high school season because he's a high school and club coach um he would not go a side side he would only do it late in the season when they were getting into playoff time and having mm-hmm. to prepare for specific opponents and wanting to be more opponent objectives but even in that case, it kind of depended on the composition of his team. Yep. Uh, I think it's a, a really interesting point because there are maybe two sides to it if you want to look at it that way. And the, the first one that, that we all know, that every coach knows, that maybe every uh, spectator knows, is that the more that any group of players play together – the better they get at playing together. It's the same as any other kind of repetition. So if you want to have a really well-functioning team at the end of the season, the best way to have a well-functioning team on the court, uh, I mean, is to choose your seven people and in the first training session of the year and you play with that seven with that group of seven until the end of the season. And that will be the maximum 
level that they can play together because they get all of those repetitions, they get all of that understanding of each other, all of the unspoken, intuitive uh, things that, that come along with that. That's on one side. On the other side, though, if you do that, you create a big, <laughs> well, you don't necessarily create a rift in your team, but you create the conditions that lead to a rift and you split your, your team into two, you, you, you make it clear that one group is better than the other, uh, and it brings on a lot of uh, potential problems, potentially brings on a lot of problems. That's one part of that side. And the other part of that side is that there's no guarantee that all the players will be fit or um, will not, you know, will be sick one day or uh, has a car, uh, car doesn't start on the way to one game. So you, if you do the first one, if you play everybody together for the whole uh, length of time, then you take a, a risk that nothing, nothing bad will happen in the course of the, the whole season. So my, my approach is more on the, as you intimated, is more on the, the second part of it. So I want to have 12 guys that uh, feel involved in the process, 12 or 14 guys that feel involved in the group, that feel they're making a contribution. I can't split playing time. Um, I um, and I I wouldn't want to necessarily either, but uh, if the players, if all, everybody has a chance to play with the first setter, to play with the first libero, all of those things, then they're more engaged in practice from a, a day-to-day point of view. And the second one is that there's no season where nothing goes wrong. So there's always uh, uh, an important match where you have a guy who's injured or who's, you know, who steps on someone's ankle or uh, our season is in the winter. So there's always four guys that get sick during the season and, you know, you, you'll lose a couple of games that way as well. So uh, I like to have everybody A, engaged and B, prepared for the moment that they will have to play. Okay, now... When you were at Berlin, you obviously had this situation where in any given match, it probably didn't matter a heck of a lot which set of guys you put out on the court because you were, aside from one, maybe two or three teams on any given night, you were a dominant team in the league and you were going to be comfortable about winning those matches. It, you know, and you were basically going toward playoffs. And comfortable was, is not the correct, uh, the correct <laughs> objective there. Uh, okay, how about the expectations were that you would win those matches regardless of who you put on the court um, just because of the talent advantage. Now, this year in Poland, you're, you're in a team, you've been leading a team that's mid-table. So a yep. different scenario. Has that impacted at all how you look at the A team, B team thing in training? Uh, in training, not at all. Not at all. I... Uh, you're you're absolutely right in uh, in Berlin the way that our team was and the, the the league was we could with almost any combination of players win um, let's say eighty percent of the games and um, 
and I use that opportunity to to keep the to keep players involved, to keep them um, engaged, to keep them fit, also to rest guys. We played a lot of matches. We were generally playing twice a week, uh, so that was part of the season management. Um, the reason I stopped you saying <laughs> comfortable is because uh, it's one of the things I noticed this season was that I wasn't in some way, I was much less stressed this season during games because last, and I worked out in the end that the last seasons um, when I was changing the team and rotating players a lot, I was essentially not going a hundred percent to win every game while still winning the game. And so this was a stressful situation for me because I still had to win the game, but I had to be also true to my greater strategic plan. So if there's one thing I, there's one thing I hate, there's actually lots of them. So I don't know why I would ever say there's one thing, but um, is when a coach decides to give certain players a rest or try some, some combination and then gives up halfway through the first set and changes everything back. And in the end, he has achieved nothing except and basically annoy every single person in the group. So, and more than likely, he lost the game as well. It happened to us in a Champions League game once where they wanted the team wanted to rest their, their star player who had a huge workload in a game that wasn't important. They, the positions were already set. And uh, so they played somebody else in that position. They played really badly. They ended up putting their starter in. So he didn't get his rest. The guy who had a chance to play didn't get to play. They still lost the game. So in the end, nobody was happy. And uh, instead of just accepting responsibility for the decision, he tried to have it both ways. Right. Anyway, but in Poland, because... You know, I was just going to say, I, mean, I, can, I can appreciate the stress level of having to play against teams that where the expectation is that you're going to win. Because yeah. I know when I was coaching at Exeter, those were the stressful matches. Like, you know you're supposed to win this match. And yeah. so your, your expectation and everybody's expectation is that you do that. Whereas when you're playing against a team that's much more to your level, you realize, okay, this could go either way. Uh, it's not that part necessarily, but the part that I wasn't playing with my starters. Mm -hmm. So if I'm playing with my starters and, or, you know, I start with my best group is a better, a better description, then, um, a, we're more likely to win, but, uh, in a sense, it's not my responsibility anymore. (laughs) (laughs) If I don't play with my best six and lose, then it's, uh, it's directly the responsibility of the coach. So, Um, at least in the eyes of others. Right. And even uh, you can talk as much as you want about preparing for playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, nobody likes to lose any match, especially if they have the opportunity not to lose that match. Mm-hmm. So uh, so there is that. But, but if we bring it back to the original point about training, I think that... Um, uh, I'm definitely in favour of, of mixing the mixing the group and and uh, including everybody or or nearly everybody in 
in every um, uh, combination. Um, that changes during the course of a week, as I'm sure I've talked about before. That that you know the last training or two trainings before the match, then the the group that will play together on the uh, in the match will will practice more together. Um, but in the first part of the week, then will definitely be some kind of uh, mixture. Yep. Um, for me. There's also the developmental side of things we haven't touched on yet, but and this is and this is what Ryan Mitchell gets at in his discussion of it, is that he's looking at it developmentally through the course of the season, up to the time of playoffs when okay now it's you got to get serious and you got to be focused on your opponent, and he wants the obviously the the less experienced players, in his case he's looking at you know, he might have a squad that's. Okay, the starters are primarily seniors and juniors, but he may have some sophomores or freshmen in there mixed mm -hmm. in. And so, obviously, he wants to be bringing them along in their development through the process, and that's aided by them getting a chance to play with the better players. Yes. Uh, and in, in my case, when I was coaching in Exeter, and we were literally running uh, two squads out of one training group uh, because the top group would play in Division One and the bottom group would play in Division Two. I still had that developmental requirement of bringing the kids along, especially since I had a certain core group that was first team and a certain core group that was second team. But then this middle that was kind of a swing group that, you know, also on a week to week basis, decided who was going to be in, on the, in the D one side and who was going to be in the D two side uh, for yeah. me in that case, it was especially in the middle. Um, and I had to, I had to work them all together. But like you talked about, I favored working them in an integrated fashion and not in two separate groups. And even doing that, to bring up your point about divisions in the squad, I still ran into an issue with one of the players in the first team, you know, developing an attitude that the first team is better than the second team, which was <laughs> so fun to deal with. So even when you try to do it, quote unquote, right, it still doesn't always work out the way you'd hope it would. Yeah, there are always those. There are always those kinds of issues. So, um, you know, you you have the issue of um, uh, um, the starters, for example, not getting to practice enough together. So they're they're unhappy about that situation. So they feel that they're not prepared enough uh, for the for the games and. That's one that I've definitely uh, had to deal with uh, relatively often. Um, and it's like everything. This is probably something I talk about in every single podcast that you, there are lots of different ways to do it. And you, you just have to sell the sell it as best as you can to the players that they, um, that they support the decision and, and understand that th th there are reasons that are not always the very first thing that comes into their mind that a coach is working always at uh, at one or two, or not one, at two or three or four different levels all at the same time about development, about rest, about injury management, about uh, preparing for playoffs, about 
preparing individuals for for something that the coach is working on all of those different things and the communication between the coach and the players about what what's going on and why uh, is important in that regard yep all right let's let's talk about the kind of i guess the technical element of of working these two different styles yeah uh, and i already br- already brought him up and he and he said you know on the one hand if you're doing split squad or integrated squad and not a b you you still want to put your best players against your best players to challenge each other so i'd, how, I'd say how, yeah, go I'd, ahead. I'd correct that i'd say not that you still want to do it that rather that that is the object of it right one of the objects of splitting the of splitting the group or mixing the group rather is that uh, that you can have your best middles playing against each other or you can have your best outside playing against the biggest block or uh, that you can manage the, those situations to, uh, to challenge the individuals more. Um, I, I think that's the, uh, that's the, central, the central reason for doing it. Yeah, it was it was a, a constant thing for me when I was coaching in Sweden, and I didn't have the numbers to do A side B side most of the time. So yeah, yeah. I had to do you know when you're only doing eight to ten players, you you gotta get creative with things. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of what I did was I had my three strong American players, yeah, who all ended up being in the team of the year. Mm-hmm. And you know you have to find ways to try to challenge them. And yep. in my case, that meant. Having my setter, who who was a good blocker, going yep. up against my American outside hitter. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other matchup I would do would be my Swedish opposite against my Swedish uh, outside hitter because they had similar things that they needed to work on and could bat against each other. Yep. Yeah, it's it just is what and Arnie kind of talked about it. It's what's your priority. What are you, you looking to work on, and how can you do that? You know, he talked about, okay, you're going up against a team that's got a big block on the outside, and okay, so I put my two biggest blockers against my pin hitter in you know, yep. this thriller of this game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, uh, uh, that's one of the things that, that you have to consider. Um, I, I don't remember the actual mechanics of the drill, but I remember uh, a cl- seeing a clinic from Terry Liskevich that maybe 20 years ago now, more more than 20 years ago, and it was some kind of uh, snake drill where uh, where the starters he rotated the groups so that the starters were uh, in the front court against each other, mm-hmm. and the second six was in the front court against each other so that he he managed that situation in a, um uh in that way or yeah so I, I there are lots of ways there are lots of ways to do it and you just have to be uh clear in every in every moment in every part of the season every part of the week every part of the training what your uh, actual goal is for that given day yep and then flipping it around when you are doing a a versus b what sorts of things do you do 
to try to maintain a competitive balance? Uh, competitive balance is important because if I'm competing in any drill, I want the, I want the score to be close. I ideally, I want that it, to organize the team so that the sets go to advantage. And that doesn't matter if I'm playing some kind of bugger game for warm up or, or a six against six. I want, I, I want every set to go to advantage. So right, wait, wait. The, uh, just define that term for those who may not know what you're talking about. Oh, that, uh, there's, uh, you have to go past the limit of the set. So okay. you have to go to 26, 24 and, uh, to win the set instead of, you know, 25, 20. Right. Okay. That's, the, that's the goal. Um, as it happens, when I actually do work with the first six, it's less often competitive. So uh, the way I've tended to work in the last two or three seasons is that the last, uh, the last practice before a game uh, and maybe the last two practices for the, before the game are not actually competitive. So uh, it'll be well, nearly everything I do is six against six, but it's six against six with some control some extra ball, some two extra balls, whatever the uh, whatever the deal is, but uh, without scoring, and that's one way to overcome the um, the imbalance that you normally have with uh, A and B sides. What uh, what Arnie talked about with the handicapping, uh, I did that. I also did that a couple of times this year. I think is uh, is also a good thing to do sometimes. And by handicapping, I mean having different scoring for, for the different sides. So normally um, uh, the way I've done it is that the, the, the A team, the first six would have to make one extra ball than the second six. So if it's, if it's one plus two for the first six, it's just one plus one for the second six or something along those lines. Yeah, the, the other thing that is useful in that perspective is is doing something related to bonus points or, or how points are scored yep. and making it different for each team uh, based on ideally whatever developmental needs you're, you want to be working on for the groups. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have a, you could have a standard scoring for the first team and have some alternate type of scoring for the second team. Yeah. Um, I remember coaching a situation where I had just a, you know, I think it was eight or 10 players or whatever it was, but it was a very clear split between older, more experienced players and younger, like teenage type players. And we basically, or I basically decided that they were going to play against each other. And the handicap was going to be to, to use your term and Arnie's term that the more mature team had to score, could only score on kills. So they could only, they can only attack and score, which, yep. you know, allowed the, the younger kids to be more aggressive because they didn't have to worry about making mistakes. And it ended up being a really competitive game in the end. Um, that I, I think for a while the, the older players were losing by, by several points. Yep. But it's, it's, it, it's interesting that the dynamics that come out of that, uh, and it's something you, you do need to be aware of because – you know, kind of as as uh, Vitel 
talked about in his uh, in his uh, one of his clips was sometimes things don't go the way you expected, and that can be negative and can, and and be positive. Yeah. Okay, so you do not need to try to think about what the players are going to actually do versus what your intentions were. Um, and an example of that was we were doing, uh, I don't think this term has necessarily reached the European shores yet, but we were doing a variation on don't drop the baby, which is, I know your Berlin team did something along this lines where they had a beanbag or a ball or whatever, and you have to toss it to your partner before you play a ball. Uh, that's what it, that's what it is. Okay. Got it. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, at the club level over here, they call it don't drop the baby. Yeah. Well, we were doing it with the, the Midwestern team a couple weeks ago and they very quickly developed a strategy of one player is going to hold the ball and the other player, their partner is going to run around and, and play all the other balls. Yeah. Like, well, that's not exactly what we're trying to get to. Um, note to self, don't do that again <laughs> in, that, in that way. Um, but so it's just something that you have to keep an eye on. I think uh, specifically to that, to that point, I always try to uh, encourage my team to find the best solution to a problem. Right. So um, what, I, what I've always said, and especially when I had junior teams, we used to talk about this a lot. We said, I want you to figure out the, the easiest, the fastest way to win whatever the game is. And it doesn't have to be within necessarily volleyball rules if I don't make a rule, uh, any particular rule, then you are well within your rights then to uh, take advantage of it. So if I don't say that you have to hit under the net, but you can hit under the net and win the point, then that's what you should do. And then it's incumbent on me to change the rule for the next one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've always kind of had the, the phrase beat the drill. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of the objective, and it's it's basically to use the more scientific term, it's guided discovery. Yeah, you just got to make sure that your guidance is, you know, going along the lines of what you're actually trying to get them to do. Mm -hmm. Not just you know, letting them go off on wild tangents, like you said, like hitting under the net. <laughs> I I let them do it once. If you can do that once, or sometimes that sometimes it's an advantage to. Uh, to make an error in a in a particular the way a drill structured, particularly if the coach isn't paying attention. But um, you know, if if only one side, if you have, if you need to score in a particular way, and you, uh, um, I can't think of an example right off the top of my head, other than that it happens at least twice a year that some some moment there's an advantage to to make an error. Okay. And then you just have to stop that advantage. Right. Right. Okay. New rule. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, we're winding down in time. So let's try to wind it back to what Arnie was talking about. Um, any final thoughts or observations, comments? I, I think that it's, it's one of the, the central parts of uh, training philosophy or, or of a coach, how, he manages or she manages the, the situation with starters and non-starters. And, and you have to have a plan, have an idea beforehand how you want that to work. And um, in, like in lots of things, there's a, the trade-off 
um, you trade off uh, cohesion of, of one group for uh, greater engagement from uh, the the whole group. So, um, and then in different moments, you have to understand uh, where you are along that continuum and, and where you have to go. Right. And yeah, and realize that and it, your situation may vary, not just from year to year, but even over the course of the season. Uh, day to day, week to month. Right. Okay, we'll wrap it there. Fantastic. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and more, visit volleyballcoachingwizards.com backslash podcast. Got an idea for a future episode or want to ask a question? Send an email to podcast at volleyballcoachingwizards.com.